All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to Genesis 31 and verse 31. Genesis 31, 31. Happy Father's Day. As I said during Sunday school, can you raise your hand if you've ever had a father? (laughs) Fatherhood's pretty significant. Um, Next week, uh, I'm not going to be here. And the reason for that is uh, the youth group is doing the rafting trip, and I'm joining the youth group for that week. Pastor Jim will be here teaching both Sunday school and the main service. I'll be back July 2nd. And we'll probably be doing a patriotic sermon of some kind. So if you want political correctness in a church, you might want to miss July 2nd. We continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis for the time being. The last song that we sang, There is a Redeemer. Well, that Redeemer is coming into the world through a special nation, the nation of Israel. God is raising up that nation as he's been dealing with Abraham. The promises then transferred to Isaac. And now we're in that section of the book of Genesis dealing with Jacob the third patriarch. Without uh, God's dealings with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we would have no Jesus as our Redeemer, and we would have no Scripture. Because the Scripture was all written by Hebrews. The only one that's debated anymore is Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts. Other than that, it seems like the entire Bible is Jewish. It's true that Christianity is for everyone, but God decided to bring it into the world through a particular nation, the nation of Israel. And that largely is what the book of Genesis is about. God is raising up that special nation. Jacob has fled from his brother Esau, the circle there in the west, and has traveled up north to a place called Haran. He's been there for 20 years. He has fled Esau, but he has fallen under the deception of a man named Laban. And yet God is at work in Jacob's life because he went into Haran up north there empty-handed. And now he's coming back out of Haran, back to the land of Canaan, a wealthy man with two wives, two maidservants, 11 sons, Benjamin not yet born, and then a daughter. He receives a word from the Lord that it's time to leave Haran, it's time to leave Laban, it's time to return to the land of Canaan. He has talked his wives (laughs) into coming with him, 
They, of course, knew nothing about Canaan. They had spent their entire lives in Haran. Now they're married to Jacob, and by faith, the whole company leaves and begins to make um, a trek back to the land of Canaan. Laban does not like it because Laban recognizes that he has prospered in Haran for 20 years because of Jacob's presence there. And so he moves into hot pursuit. It takes him about seven days to track Jacob down. They meet the two groups, Laban's group and Jacob's group, meet in the mountains of Gilead, which is in the Transjordan, east of the Jordan River. And this is where this whole exchange happens that we're reading about now. There has been a report to Laban that Jacob has left. Laban chases. God has warned Laban in a dream. Laban catches Jacob. Laban has launched a verbal attack against Jacob. And now we start to get Jacob's response. We pick it up there in verses 31 and 32. The first thing Jacob does is he gives the reasons for the flight. Why did he leave? Genesis 31, 31, Jacob replied to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. This uh, demonstrates Laban's unfaithful character in the eyes of Jacob. Uh, Laban has been involved in a lot of deceit over these 20 years. And his character had deteriorated to the point where in Jacob's eyes, Jacob says, look, if I, if I didn't leave, you would probably take your two daughters back from me by force, whom you gave to me in marriage. Jacob, as you move into verse 32, gives actually an offer to Laban. Notice verse 32. It says, the one with whom you find your gods shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen. Point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. Now we discover, or we have been discovering, the reason for the pursuit. When you go back to verse 19, what you learn is one of the last things that Rachel did before she left Haran en route back to Canaan is she stole her father's, Laban's, household gods. In Hebrew, these are called the teraphim. And consequently, why in the world would Laban pursue this company for 300 miles to retrieve these gods when he could have simply replaced them in local shops? The answer is modern archaeology has helped us understand that, that these teraphim, these household gods, In essence, if a person owned them and possessed them, they could lay claim to the entire estate. So Laban has kind of dressed up this hot pursuit in terms of, oh, I wanted to give you a goodbye kiss. Oh, I wanted to have a party for you. 
we're really getting down to the bottom here and we're seeing what his true motives are. I want the household gods back because I want my estate, I want my finances protected. He is um, completely and totally dominated by the pursuit and the acquisition of and the holding on of money. One of the most misquoted verses in the Bible is, people think it says, money is the root of all evil. Allegedly in 1 Timothy chapter 6, actually when you study that chapter, you'll see that that's not exactly what the Bible says. It says love of money is the root of all evil. There's nothing wrong with having possessions as long as our possessions don't possess us. There's nothing wrong with owning things as long as the things we own don't own us. Because the human heart is such by design from God that it can only serve one master. If a person does not know Jesus Christ and They have not submitted to the walk of discipleship with Jesus. They have to fill that void or that vacuum within them with something or else they're living outside of their intended design. Everyone needs a God. We sometimes choose artificial substitutes, little gods with little g rather than God with a capital G. And one of the best uh, artificial substitutes that people gravitate for are material possessions, material things. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 verse 24 is very clear. He says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Laban's basic problem is he had no room for God in his life and in his heart because he was already serving a God, the God of wealth, the God of mammon. And we don't want to end up like Laban. Amen. We want to be people that can hold on to things very, very loosely. And if we happen to be blessed with things, we want to be in a position position or a mindset where we say, Lord, you've given me these things. I want to use them as instruments of blessing to other people. When I uh, give money to my local church, for example, I shouldn't do it grudgingly or with a sad face on saying God is taking my money. Because the truth of the matter is, it isn't my money. It isn't your money. It's God's money that he has allowed you to be a steward of on his behalf. And that's the proper mindset towards finances and towards money. Laban obviously is the exact opposite. Um, He had no room for God in his heart because he was completely and totally focused on acquiring and then once acquiring, keeping his finances. So what you see here in verse 32 is Jacob now making an offer to Laban. He says, the one whom you find your gods shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen. Point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. In other words, you wanted 
these household gods that you think we stole, search through all our stuff as we're traveling on and in route, we're now camping, and whatever you find that's yours, take it. Now, of course, Jacob makes that statement because he doesn't know what Rachel had done. He doesn't understand that Rachel, one of his wives, the wife whom he had set his affections and heart upon, had actually taken the household gods deceptively in her final act as she was leaving Haran and going back to Canaan. So you see Jacob's ignorance about all of this expressed at the second half of verse 32 of Genesis 31, for it says, For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Why did Rachel steal them? Well, if you backtrack to verse 16, Rachel had said, Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. In other words, she felt as if she was not receiving a proper dowry. She was not being properly looked after financially as Laban's daughter. And so her final act secretly is to take these household gods as she left Haran and made her way back into Canaan. Of course, Jacob does not understand that she has stolen these household gods. By the way, this is what she would call in the Bible descriptive literature and not prescriptive. It's describing what Rachel did. It's not saying it's good. And you have to learn to make that distinction as you move through the Bible because the Bible doesn't say everything that's recorded in Scripture is something that we ought to do. I mean, after all, the Bible talks about how Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's in the Bible. That doesn't mean I go out and do something similar to that. It's describing rather than prescribing. The doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy simply guarantees that these stories actually happened. But it's not saying go out and do likewise. Now, if you want information in the Bible that is prescriptive, rather than just describing, then you would read the Ten Commandments. The last time I checked, one of those commandments is, Thou shalt not what? Thou shalt not steal. So this is not some kind of commentary on, Yay, look at what Rachel did here. It is describing what happened rather than what than prescribing what we should do. So... Essentially what happens is Jacob has responded to Laban's verbal attack. Go ahead and search. And so Laban says, all right, I'll do just that. And so you have a description of Laban's search there in verses 33 through 35. Notice, first of all, Laban searches the tents of the other women. The other women would be Rachel and then the tents of the two bridesmaids, uh, Billa and Zilpah, he searches those tents first to find these household gods. It says there in verse uh, 33, So Laban went into Jacob's tent and Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maids, but he did not find them. 
So he went into Rachel's tent, couldn't find the teraphim or the household gods, went into Zilpah's tent, couldn't find the household gods. He went into Billah's tent, um, couldn't find the household gods. Let me see if I had that right. He searches Leah's tent, Zilpah's tent, and Billah's tent. That's what I'm trying to say. He hasn't searched Rachel's tent yet. We discover here that Rachel is pretty good. Not at just stealing things, but hiding stolen items. And so you see what Rachel is hiding there at the end of verse 33 and into verse 34. It says, then he, that's Laban, now actually begins to search Rachel's, Rachel's tent. End of verse 33, then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Verse 34, now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle and she sat down on them. Verse 34 is a description of Laban's search of Rachel's tent. And it says, and Laban felt through all the tent, but he did not find them. And now what we come to is Rachel's excuse. It's very interesting there. Verse 35. She said to her father, remember, Laban is Rachel's father. She said to her father, let not my Lord be angry so that I cannot rise before you for the manner of women is upon me. So he searched, but not did not find the household items. Notice, uh, first of all there, beginning at verse 35, it says, She said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry, I cannot rise before you. She didn't stand up. The reasons why she didn't stand up are given a little bit later, but she didn't stand up. She was actually sitting on the camel's saddle where she hid these teraphim. So she didn't rise up. Now, that's a, it's a bit odd because, first of all, in the nation of Israel, you always rise before an older person. Leviticus 19 verse 32 says, you shall rise up before the gray-headed. And I find myself more and more in that category as the years progress. You should rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, and you shall revere the Lord your God. I am the Lord. First uh, Kings chapter two verse nineteen says, "So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah, and the king arose to meet her, bowed before her, sat on his throne." Then he had a throne set for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. So you can see from these different passages that it's very common within the Hebrew culture, the Hebrew tradition, to rise in the presence of someone older, particularly your own father. And she doesn't do that here. She remains seated. You sort of have to put yourself in Rachel's position here for just a moment. If you back up to verse 32, what exactly did Jacob say to Laban? Search everything. And the person within my entourage that 
is hiding these household idols, these teraphim, let that person be executed. So it's sort of interesting that Rachel may have been concerned for her own life. Would Laban have killed his own daughter? I don't know. Um, Laban's character is not exactly the very, very best, as we have discovered. But perhaps Rachel does this because she is fearful for her own life. So at the second part of verse 35, she gives an excuse. I mean, we know why she's sitting on the camel's saddle. She's hiding. She doesn't want the camel saddle to be searched because that's where she's hiding the teraphim. Verse 35, she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry so that I cannot rise before you for the manner of women is upon me. Charles Ryrie kind of sums up verse 35 as follows. It was customary for children, regardless of age, to stand in the presence of their parents. But Rachel claimed to be menstruating. Arnold Fruchtenbaum also says, so in verse 35a, gives Rachel's excuse. She said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the manner of woman is upon me. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says what she claimed was that she was now having her period. So she was in pain and discomfort. And could not rise. Now, if this were true, and it may have been true, since she, or it may not have been true. She could have been lying, or maybe she was telling the truth. Now, if this was true, this would have, in effect, contaminated the household gods, rendering them unclean because of coming into contact with menstrual blood. A woman in the menstrual state did not need to rise. Now here's what I find very interesting about this, this last sentence. So Laban was deceived by a local custom just as he had once deceived Jacob by a local custom. Here again is curse for curse in kind. This indeed may have actually saved Rachel's life. When you go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 29, verse 26, you remember how Laban deceived Jacob. He had worked seven years for Rachel, and he got Leah instead. Hey, what's the deal? Laban sort of coughed up this excuse that, you know, around these parts, young man, um, we give the older away first. Genesis 29, 26 But Laban said, it is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. So the reason he got Leah when he wanted Rachel is because Laban had deceived Jacob concerning a a local custom. And what does the book of Genesis say concerning the nation of Israel? When God formed the nation of Israel, he gave to the nation of Israel certain promises. And one of those promises is, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. Genesis 12, verse 3 says, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Question, how literal is this? As you move through the Bible, what you'll discover is this is very, very literal. God responds in kind. That's why we've entitled this sermon, In Kind, to those who come against the nation of Israel. For example, in the book of Exodus, God drowned the Egyptians. The Egyptians were pursuing the Hebrews through uh, what is called the, the Red Sea. God, as you know, closed the waters on the pursuing Egyptians once the Hebrews made it to the other side on dry land. And at some point you have to ask yourself, why would God drown the Egyptians? Would he could have killed them any way he wanted? He could have used a tsunami. He could have used an earthquake. He could have used a hurricane. He could have, oh, I don't know, opened up the ground. And it could have swallowed up people. Why specifically did God choose to drown the Egyptians? And the answer is in Exodus chapter 1. Where the Egyptians were taking God's people and drowning them into the Nile. And Genesis 12 verse 3 means what it says and says what it means. The one who curses you, I will curse. You drown my people, I'm going to drown your people. You see how literal this in-kind promise is. Why, why did God, in the book of Exodus, kill in plague number 10 the firstborn all over Egypt? Why did God kill the firstborn? You'll find an answer to that in the book of Exodus, chapter 4, verse 22, where God calls the nation of Israel, my firstborn son. Hey, Egypt, you want to play games with my firstborn son? I'm coming after your firstborn son. In kind. Why is it in the book of Esther that Haman was killed or hung on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai? Why is that? Because of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. The one who curses you, I will curse. And here is just another example of it. Once you become sensitive to this concept as a Bible reader, you'll see it everywhere. God allows Laban to be deceived by a local custom because Laban used a local custom a couple chapters earlier to deceive Jacob. And I'm here to tell you, folks, that I don't see any statute of limitations on this promise. I will curse those who curse you. When God chose the nation of Israel, it was understood that Satan would do everything within his power to wipe Israel out. People would constantly rise up against the nation of Israel. And God, to protect his Firstborn son, the nation of Israel, gave to the nation of Israel certain promises. There are many of them. We have them listed here from Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. We've gone through them. But one of the most prominent of these eight or so promises or blessing is this in-kind 
promise. The one who curses you, I will curse. And as I said before, a lot of people will tell you, ah, that's just Old Testament stuff. Doesn't apply today. I'm here to tell you folks that I see no statute of limitations on this. It is a universal principle that God has given. And as we sort of approach July the 4th and sort of look at the state of our own country, you can almost document almost everything that is going wrong in our country today relates to the fact that some way, somehow, we have mistreated the nation of Israel. I understand that America traditionally has been Israel's best friend, but not always. Administration after administration, doesn't matter if they're Republican or Democrat, since I've come of age, has pursued a policy where we want to capitulate to the world community and we want to divide the nation of Israel. It's called the two-state solution. And essentially what that means is we want to take what they call the West Bank, which is not in the Bible, that term West Bank, the better designation for it is Gaza, Judea rather, and Samaria. And we need to turn that over to the world community. We need to turn that over to the Palestinians. Another term that you don't find in the Bible, the word Palestine. In other words, the policy of the world community and the United States has been behind this to a large extent is to divide the nation of Israel. Now, if this means what it says and says what it means, and God says, I will curse those who curse you, isn't it interesting that our country today is more divided than it's ever been? I mean, we're, we're probably more divided over, you know, you see the maps, blue state, red state. We're probably divided more than we've ever been since the Civil War. Because God means what he says and says what he means. There there is no statute of limitations on this. It's a universal principle or law that God has decreed. You come against Israel, God comes against you. It's very simple. The, The whole book of Genesis is an outworking to a large extent of that principle. And as we come up on July 4th and sort of reflect on America, the movement today, MAGA, Make America Great Again, interesting title. If you want to make America great again, I'm always wondering what made America great to begin with. Many, many people have speculated what has made America great. You'll find the answer in what's called the Toro Synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island. They have a museum there set up. The the Toro Synagogue was the first synagogue that ever existed in the United States. George Washington, the father of our country, was invited there for a time of worship with the Jewish people. He accepted the invitation and he wrote a letter to the Toro Synagogue 
the very day that he visited this synagogue. And they have it there in Newport, Rhode Island, in the form of a museum. You can see the letter. The letter is uh, very impressive. It's actually been quoted, I think, about three times in United States Supreme Court decisions. And in this particular letter, George Washington cites some provisions from the book of Micah, and I think also from Isaiah, and he says, you know what? The Jews are going to be able to allowed to live in the United States of America, and none will make them afraid. And what he said is the Jews can live in the United States without persecution. And you have to understand that from the Jewish mind, what George Washington gave to the Israelis was an absolute gift. Because everywhere they had gone for the last 2,000 years, they had been persecuted. As they were pushed out of their homeland by the Romans in AD 70 and went into worldwide dispersion, they were persecuted everywhere they went. And, th- and think about that for a minute. The political power that pushed them out of their land was Rome, a worldwide power. Well, today Rome is no longer a worldwide power, but the nation of Israel continues. Under Rome, the lingua franca was Latin. Is it not interesting that today Latin is a dead language and Hebrew is a live language? And this would all be an outworking of Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. In kind, it's the very thing that Laban here is experiencing. And when the Jews went into this worldwide dispersion, they were persecuted everywhere they went. And George Washington, when he wrote to this first synagogue in the United States, said, you know what, it's going to be different here in the United States. You can worship as you want to worship. You're not here to be persecuted. You're not here to be oppressed. I don't know what your interpretation of American history is. I'll tell you what mine is. The God of heaven reached down and touched the United States and blessed it from sea to shining sea because the father of our country was a blessing to the Jewish people. And it does frighten me to some extent to watch administration after administration veer away from that principle and come against in some way, shape, or form the Jewish nation. You're, 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 it's not... <laughs> the Middle East is not like a typical hotel real estate deal. It's not the art of the deal. It's not like building a casino. You're dealing with God himself who has made unconditional promises. And God cannot lie. Whatever he says, he has to... Follow through on. I don't spend a lot of my time concerned about Israel because I know that Israel is going to do just fine. Israel has a covenant from God. What does concern me is the United States of America. 
I don't think Israel needs America. I think it's the other way around. I think America needs Israel. Hopefully I said that right. Rather than Israel needing America. In kind. Why is Laban being deceived by a local custom? Because he deceived Jacob by a local custom two chapters earlier. It is very interesting to me that the Bible teaches you reap what you sow. The book of Galatians chapter 6 verses 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It's interesting that a lot of times in life, people get the exact same treatment they give to other people. Have you noticed that? Kind people, generous people, compassionate people. It's sort of interesting how kindness and compassion and generosity seems to come back their direction. In fact, I know a particular person, no one that anyone in here knows This particular person is very outspoken on social media. Been watching the tweets for a while. Watching some of the language that this person uses degenerate into name calling. In some cases being vulgar. And it's sort of interesting over the course of time how this same person that's so quick to call names and so quick to be vulgar, they get that exact same treatment from others on social media. This particular person comes to my mind because now they're complaining about it. And I'm thinking, have you looked back at your former tweets and posts three, four, five, six years ago? You were doing the exact same thing. You you reap what you sow. Laban is being deceived by a local custom. Why, Why is Laban being deceived by a local custom? Because he deceived Jacob by a local custom. He's He's literally reaping what he sowed. The principle of in kind is at work here. As it's at work throughout all of human history. But if you're not a student of the Bible, you would never recognize this. You could blame the decline of the United States of America or the rise of the United States of America on any other array of subjects. And the cable news outlets and radio programs are will fill your mind with all kinds of subjects, all kinds of topics. And isn't it interesting how little old me... And little old you know exactly what the problem is because we study the book of Genesis and we take God at his word and we move through the book of Genesis verse by verse. I think it's Psalm 119. It's a, it's a Torah Psalm. It's exalting the virtues of Torah. It's, Sort of like an acrostic, it's set up like the Hebrew alphabet. It's the longest psalm 
in the Psalter. To my knowledge, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. And every line in Psalm 119 will begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And there'll be eight lines. And then you go to the second section. Every line in the psalm begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, eight lines. And it goes like this all the way through the end of the Hebrew alphabet, exalting and extolling the virtues of Torah. Torah being the law. Torah being the first five books of Hebrew Bible. The books written by Moses. Why why should I read these? And as you move through that particular psalm, what you'll see is statements like these. I am wiser than my teachers because I've meditated on Torah. I'm wiser than the aged and the more learned. I'm wiser than people with more academic degrees. I'm wiser than people that are older than me. Because I've meditated on Torah. It's just fascinating to me how just paying attention to what God says, taking him at his word, watching him validate and vindicate his principles. It's amazing to me how it puts you so far ahead of the game in terms of understanding. And, And Psalm 119, I used to misunderstand it as, oh, this is just a psalm speaking of the virtues of what we call Old Testament. It took uh, Dr. Ronald Allen at Dallas Seminary to straighten me out on that. No, this is not a psalm, Psalm 119, about the value of the Old Testament. Certainly, the whole Old Testament is valuable. But that's not what the psalm is about. This is a psalm about Torah. This is a psalm about the first five books. Studying the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's five, right? Sometimes called Pentateuch, Penta, five, five books. How studying and meditating, it doesn't just say study, it says meditating, ruminating. In fact, what you'll find in the Psalms is the repetition of the word selah. I was a student at Dallas Seminary under J. Dwight Pentecost, and that's how he would conclude his lectures in class. He would say, Selah. And I didn't have any idea what he was talking about. What does Selah mean? In fact, as you go through the Psalms, it keeps saying, Selah. Selah. What does that even mean? It's a Hebrew word that means consider carefully. Ruminate on this. Contemplate this. Be um, like Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3 says, when it's talking about the man, or woman for that matter, who is blessed. I mean, how do I have a blessed life? The Bible talks about a blessed life. Is there anybody in here that does not want to be blessed. Can you put your hand up, please? We all want to be blessed. Well, the Psalms tell us how to be blessed. 
Psalm number one, the very first one. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of scoffers or sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his law is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he what? Meditates how frequently? Day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Count me in on that, Lord. But the Lord says, have you met the condition? What's the condition? That you meditate not just on the Old Testament, but you meditate on the law. The first five books of Hebrew Bible. That's how you begin to understand the principles of God. And as you understand the principles of God, suddenly the the world that you're living in starts to make sense. Even though people are much older than you, much more educated than you, uh, maybe they're more glib than you, you seem to have some kind of insight that they don't have. Where did you get it from? Psalm 119 says you got it from Selah, studying Torah. The book of Joshua, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, as God was sending Joshua into the land of Canaan to conquer Canaan. He says to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 and verses 8 and 9. Actually, let's start with verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to the law. That's Torah. Which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law, law, Torah, first five books, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it. How frequently? Day and night. Kind of sounds like Psalm chapter 1 verse 3. So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have success. Lord, sign me up for that. And the Lord says, have you met your condition? Are you sila? Are you meditating on God's word day and night? Well, gee, I wish we went to a normal church where the pastor just did an eight-week sermon and moved on. Why are we going so slow through the book of Genesis? That's the reason. Because I want you to be blessed and I want to be blessed too. I want you to be able to look at this world and see it through the prism of God. And yet, how can you do it? How can you analyze it correctly when we don't take our time in Torah, Genesis being the first of those five books? Going back to Genesis 31:35, She said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry, so that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. So he, that's Laban, searched but did not find the household idols. Laban is deceived by a local custom just as he was a deceiver of another by a local custom. 
And then you move down to verses 36 through 42, and you see Jacob's response. Notice verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. I used to think that anger, if I expressed it or felt it, was always a sin. And yet the Bible doesn't teach that. The book of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26 says, be angry, yet do not let, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. There is a place in scripture for righteous anger. This is the kind of thing that Jacob, I think, is experiencing. He is justifiably angry. He has been abused. He has been mistreated. He, in his mind anyway, believes he's been falsely accused by Laban. Do you know Jesus got angry? Jesus Jesus got so angry that he drove the money changers out of the temple overturned their tables. And if I'm understanding my Bible correctly, he did it twice. He did it once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry. Mark chapter 3 and verse 5, it says of Jesus, after looking around at them with anger, Grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. In other words, we clearly see in Scripture a place for righteous anger, but you have to monitor it very carefully, because if it's a self-centered anger, an anger where we're seeking to vindicate ourselves rather than God, then it becomes sinful. But anger itself for a righteous cause, is scripturally acceptable and appropriate. I I think David got angry with Goliath when he heard Goliath's taunts. And David talked about who is this uncircumcised Philistine. that comes against the living God. If you can look at the state of the United States today and not feel a sense of anger at what's going on, I question whether you are being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. If you can drive by an abortion clinic that murders innocent children around the clock and not feel some sort of inner anger at that, I question whether we are really being led by the Holy Spirit. Paul the Apostle in Acts 17, he came into the pagan cities and he saw that they were filled with idols. And and his soul, Acts 17 tells us, was stirred. I hope there's something stirring in your heart over all kinds of things that are happening in our world. I I hope that when you look at how the the devil is um, deceiving a whole generation, 
through public school curriculum that says, all right, we're going to take you against your parents' awareness and we're going to cut off your male genitals and call you a woman rather than a man and your parents don't even know what's going on. And if you're a female, we're going to cut off your two breasts and we're going to, instead of calling you a female, we're going to call you a male. And we want to do it with your kids and we want to do it without you even knowing what's going on. If you're not angry at that, I question whether we're even being led by the Holy Spirit at all. There is an absolute appropriate place for what I would call God-ordained righteous anger. But, But monitor it carefully. Make sure it doesn't become some sort of sinful, narcissistic emotion. Cain, I think, went down the wrong road with anger. Genesis 4, 5 through 8 says, But for Cain and for his offering he had no regard, so Cain became angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Obviously, misdirected anger. You look at the whole kind of fresh in my mind because they were playing it the other night on television. Not that I recommend you spend a lot of time watching television, kind of rehearsing the OJ situation. And it just occurred occurred to me as I was watching that, that that whole sad scenario, the consequences and the repercussions of such are being felt to this very day could have been eliminated if a man kept his emotions in check when they were going the wrong direction. I'm not here to produce a bunch of angry people. Anger can be very misdirected. But I'm here to tell you that biblically speaking, there is a righteous anger that is acceptable. It is appropriate. And that's what I think Jacob is experiencing here as he begins now to speak back to Laban. This will lead to Jacob's challenge and then to a wonderful presentation where Jacob will explain to Laban that I am an innocent man and I've been abused. I'm suffering not because I did anything wrong, but because of circumstances that you threw against me. And we'll see all that as we pick it up next time, actually a couple weeks out, in the middle there, verse 36. But when you speak of the anger of God or anger in general, we have to mention the anger of God. God has a righteous anger too. And God's righteous anger is against sin. Which means that His anger is directed at all of us because all of us have sinned. 
Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is angry. The famous sermon in church uh, history. Sinners in the hands of uh, an angry God. God is angry. All of us are moving into His judgment. But fortunately... That's not the gospel. The gospel means good news. How could I, moving into God's wrath, be good news? Well, the good news is God channeled his anger at another source, his own son, who stepped into the line of fire and absorbed the wrath of God the Father in our place. And if I will simply receive what Jesus has done for me 2,000 years ago, as a free gift, then there's a wonderful doctrine in the Bible called propitiation, which means the satisfaction of divine wrath. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, For there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. God is not angry at me today, nor is he angry at any Christian because his vengeance was satiated 2,000 years ago by Jesus. But to the person that has never trusted in Christ as their Savior, then on the authority of the Word of God, God's wrath abides on that person. Here's what John 3 verse 36 says. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God. That's a frightening expression, isn't it? The wrath of God abides or remains on him. There's only two kinds of people in this world. Those who are under God's wrath, like the sword of Diamocles waiting to fall at any minute, and those that are under the protective custody and care of Jesus because he absorbed God's wrath in our place. What exactly was happening 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary? Let me simplify it as simple as I know how to make it. One member of the Trinity, God the Father, poured out his wrath on another member of the Trinity, God the Son so that wrath would not have to fall on us. He just asks that we receive what he's done for us as a gift. And the only way to receive a gift from God is to believe. Romans uh, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 spells it out, I think, as clearly as it could be spelled out. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 puts it this way. Now to the one who works his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But the one who does not work, but believes. Can I say that again? But the one who does not work, but believes. You guys want to say that with me? But the one who does not work, but believes. In him 
who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. The only way to receive this free gift is to believe or trust in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. It's more than intellectual assent, it's trust. That's what the Greek word pistis in the noun form, pistuo in the verb form means. It means to trust, to depend upon, to rely upon. We just had a wonderful presentation about Vacation Bible School. Why go to the trouble? To get the message to children at a level where they can understand it. That's why we do it. We just had a wonderful presentation of two missionaries that our church is privileged to support. Two young ladies that have given their lives to the cause of missions. Why go through the hassle to get this gift to people in a language, in a culture that they can understand it? And so our exhortation as we speak of righteous anger, it's not just the righteous anger of Jacob, it's the righteous anger of God. And yet, that anger has been satisfied, propitiation, satisfaction of divine wrath for those that are in Christ Jesus, for those that have trusted in what Jesus has done. We encourage everyone within the sound of my voice in the building, watching or listening online, listening or watching archives after the fact to trust in what Jesus has done and to be delivered from the coming wrath of God. It's not something you have to walk an aisle to do, join a church to do, give money to do, pledge to work at VBS next year to receive. By the way, you should work next year at VBS, but this has nothing to do with that. It's just a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where the Lord puts you under conviction and you respond to it by saying, you know what, I need that. And I'm trusting in what Jesus has done for me. If it's something you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for Jacob and the things that his life teaches us. Help us to be counted among those who are blessed as we see law, meditate, ruminate on Torah. Change the way we think. Change our paradigm. Help us to be more learned than those that are more aged or more educated because we've taken the time to meditate on your law. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said.